This is It Just Takes One. One person, one experience, one idea, one moment to change your life. Here's what's coming up on today's show. The guy looked at me and goes, so what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were younger? Maybe 11, 12, 13 years old. And I was like, huh, never thought of that before. And the light bulb kind of went off. And I started thinking about all of the things that maybe I didn't know or did know that I didn't take serious. And that's where the, the idea for the book came to life and why I've titled it, If I Had Known. In 2008, when the U.S. men's gymnastics team competed in Beijing, China, they were not expected to do well. <laughs> in fact, the media was talking about the fact that two of the previous Olympic medalists, Paul and Morgan Hamm, were not competing in 2008 because of injuries. Without the Hams, the U.S. was one of the only teams at the Olympic Games that did not have an athlete with previous Olympic experience. And that is not normal in men's gymnastics. <laughs> the world might not have expected a great result, but this group of men had a very different idea. In fact, they ended up surprising everyone with a third place finish, receiving the team bronze medal. How many of you remember watching that moment? <laughs> if you're anything like me, obsessed with the Olympics, you'll remember it. I remember the surprise the complete and utter shock that this group of men was actually going to be on the medal podium. It was so exciting to see them and to feel part of this extraordinary moment where they had surpassed everyone's expectations. A true Olympic story. Well, my guest today was one of the members of that U.S. Olympic team. Not only did Jonathan Horton receive the bronze medal alongside his teammates that year, but he also won the silver medal on the high bar. And that win also came with a bit of a surprise. In fact, Jonathan shares that story of a last minute decision he made, which ended up helping him clinch that silver medal. It's a great story and I know you're gonna enjoy hearing it. And you'll hear some of the behind the scenes experiences of competing on the world stage. But there is a lot more to Jonathan's experiences in life than gymnastics, and he shares about that as well. I don't wanna give away too much, so I'm going to stop here and just invite you to sit back and enjoy listening as Jonathan Horton shares his story. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to It Just Takes One. How's it going? Thank you going great. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share your story. Yeah, very excited to be, uh, be on and share it with you. I'm just going to read a little bit of your bio because I want to give people a, a sense of who you are as we, as we begin this conversation. So I'm just going to read a little bit just to give them some of the highlights of your career. Jonathan Horton is a motivational speaker, a two-time Olympic medalist, a professional athlete, and a competitor on NBC's American Ninja Warrior. In 2008 at the Beijing Olympics, he helped lead the U.S. team to a bronze medal and brought home a silver medal of his own on the high bar. 
He competed for the University of Oklahoma for four years, 2005 to 2008, earning 18 career All-American honors. Six of those honors came with first place finishes. He was a two-time U.S. national all-around champion, and he competed in the 2012 Olympics in London, finishing sixth place on the horizontal bar event. Following a, a shoulder injury, Jonathan retired from the sport and began his career as a motivational speaker and American Ninja Warrior competitor, and he currently lives in Houston with his wife Haley and their son and daughter. Jonathan, so many pieces in there, and I wanted to read that intentionally because I wanted to give people really a, an overview of the career that you had as a gymnast. What stands out for you when you hear me read that bio? I think what stands out for me the most is like, I hear it and I'm like, wow, I did all of that. <laughs> it feels like a life that I had and I'm like, where did it go? And you know, people always say, hey, soak in the moment and enjoy your career as an athlete. But, you know, I'm almost 33 years old. I did gymnastics for 28 years. And I think back on all of it and college and the Olympics, I'm like, wow, that was me. That's crazy. And, uh, you know, time just flies and I wish I could do it all again. But that's why I've gotten involved in other sports like Ninja Warrior now. It's pretty remarkable when you say you're 33 years old and you've already had this extraordinary career and your life is still just beginning. <laughs> you're you're yeah, early on. You know, I, I tell people I'm, I'm retired from gymnastics and they go, retired? How old are you? And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, 32, almost 33. And they're like, oh, that's crazy. You can't, you can't do it anymore? And I'm like, well, I could. I'm just not even close to as good as I used to be. You know, gymnastics is just not a sport of longevity. Most people retire when they're 21, 22, right out of college, because it's just, uh, I guess when people watch gymnastics on TV, they see the end product. They see a, a beautiful gymnast that does stuff. And our goal is to make it look easy. They don't realize the amount of time and hours in the gym and the impact. And it really is, it's, you know, they call football a contact sport. Well, gymnastics is a contact sport just as much where our bodies are slamming on the mats and the bars and training and it's stuff that people don't see, but it's just not a sport that you can do for very long. I started when I was four and, you know, 28 years later, still doing it. And after six surgeries, it's just like, Oh, it's time to hang it up. I can't go anymore. Yeah. There's more after the physical piece ends, there's, there's much more to life. We'll talk about that as yeah. we go along here, but yeah. let's talk about that time when you were four, when it actually all began, because the story of how you started in gymnastics <laughs> made me smile when I read it. Yeah. So it's a little bit ridiculous. And I always tell people, I, none of this is made up. It's a hundred percent true. Um, I, I share this story just because it is absolutely ridiculous. And I have a hard time believing it. But um, my mom, when I was four years old, I was a rambunctious wild child. And I was that kid that always ran around with the monkey backpack and the leash on. Anybody that's a parent knows the monkey backpack with the leash. So <laughs> I was just a wild ADD kid. My mom, she took me to a Target one day, didn't have the, the backpack with the leash. And she, she lost me in the middle of the store. I just took off when she wasn't looking. Anyways, five minutes goes by. She can't find me. 10 minutes, still can't find me. And she's panicking and the whole store starts searching for me. The manager finally spots me, comes up to my mom and says, Hey, calm down. I found your son. And he pointed to the ceiling. There was a <laughs> 25 foot support beam in the middle of the store that I had bear hugged and shimmied to the top. And my mom says that my head was at the ceiling. 
And I vaguely remember, just like barely remember being at the top of that pole, looking down, thinking, this is awesome. <laughs> and um, anyways, I slid down the pole, didn't know I'd done anything wrong. My mom went home that night, told my dad, and my dad was basically like, wow, our son's a freak. Hey, look, put him in gymnastics. <laughs> and so they enrolled me into a gymnastics facility the very next day. And it was, it was love at first sight. I, I love the sport, being able to play in the foam pits and the high bars, the rings, everything. It was just a blast. That's amazing. Do you think your parents had any sense of what was going to happen when they started doing gymnastics? I mean, they recognized that you had an ability to, to climb and you had a lot of energy, which I think a lot of parents with kids yeah. that age might see. When do you think they recognized that there was more to it than just a chance to, you know, an outlet for your energy? Oh, you know what? I think they have, they had no idea what they were getting into. I think that they were just looking for an outlet to, like you said, get some of that energy out and, you know, take some of the, um, you know, I think they just wanted me to go to sleep at night. They're like, Hey, let's put him in a gym and see if we can expend, you know, get some of that energy out and he'll actually go to sleep because it wasn't sleeping. Anyway, I think that they realized what they had gotten into when I was about six years old. So I went to, um, I was going to this little recreational gymnastics facility here in Houston, Texas, and someone recommended that I go um, to another gym that was more competitive. So I go to this other gym, and it's actually called Colhane's Gymnastics, and Jim Colhane was a two-time Olympian. And um, so we go there, and I'm bouncing off the walls at Colhane's, and I was not the most gifted kid. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the fastest. A lot of people don't realize I was not very talented growing up, but I had this explosive energy that Jim Colhane saw something in. And he approached my mom after being at his place after one day and said, hey, I want to put your son on the competitive team. And my mom was like, you're crazy. She actually thought he was just trying to get more money out of her. <laughs> and uh, anyways, he was like, no, he's very raw. He's not the most talented kid, but I see something special in him. I see something in his eye and his mindset that he could be great. And my parents were like, okay, you're the Olympian. We trust you. And I think it was at that point that they were like, okay, we're about to go down some crazy rabbit hole of gymnastics. We don't know where this is going. And I started competing and I never won anything growing up. I was not that kid that walked away with the medals and the, the ribbons and the trophies. You know, I really didn't start succeeding in the sport till I was in my teens but it was just whatever Jim Colhane saw in me, I give him a lot of credit for seeing something special and wanting to bring it out. And uh, that's, that's really how I got started. I love that story. And you know what I really love about that story? You know, part of the reason that I started this podcast was this recognition that it just takes one person or one moment, you know, somebody to believe in you to yeah. change the direction of your life. And, and you'll hear in all the stories on this podcast, those experiences and those people. And it sounds like Jim Colhane was one of those for you in your life, that he could see something and, and believe that there was potential there, raw, you know, not maybe apparent so much to the general public and, the, and you know, people in general, but he saw it. And because of that, and because your parents then believed in it as well, um, you know, it, it literally opened the door to what became an extraordinary career. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't, I don't remember a whole lot of it. I was four, five, six years old. Who remembers that much from that time in their life? But I do remember being at Cole Haynes' facility and being the only kid that just was 
going all out every single day. Like I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I got yelled at by, we called him Mr. Jim, Mr. Jim Colhane. <laughs> and I got yelled at and screamed at. And, but for whatever reason, he just believed in me and spent a lot of time in me. And there were other kids there that were winning everything that went to his gym. But he just poured his heart and soul into me. And, you know, not to be arrogant, but I'm the only one that did anything out of the group. I'm the only one that stuck with the sport. And there's something that he did tell me when I was a kid that I'll never forget. He said, if you stick with gymnastics long enough, you may not become an Olympian. You may not even become a collegiate gymnast. But if you stick with it, you'll be a good gymnast. He said, most people just don't stick with it. Mm -hmm. And I always remember that. And I think my sport was just, it was a marathon that most people quit. You just had to stick with it. And so he just gave me these little nuggets and gave me belief that got me to the end. Amazing. Amazing. I should fill in for the listeners to uh, a little bit about our connection because some of this was written in the book. Our connection is that we were just working together on publishing your book and the book has come out. It's launched and it has um, hit the stores. It's not available on Amazon. We'll put those links on for the listeners later on. It's called If I Had Known and you share some of these stories and some of these life lessons that you learned, including the one that you just said, you know, that you never give up, that you just keep trying and stay consistent and that in the end, there's a result to that. So, so I, I love that you brought that up and it kind of ties into to our connection and, and our connection with the book. I actually want to read something from the book, which emphasizes the point you just made. And this is in the introduction of your book. And it says, I started competing at the age of six. At that time, I wasn't what most people would think of as an Olympian. I wasn't an instant success or a child prodigy. I walked away from countless competitions with nothing to show, no medals, no ribbons, no trophies. However, in 1996, at the age of 11, everything changed for me. I watched my first Olympic games. When I saw the greatest athletes in the world win medals for their country, I knew I wanted to do the same thing. So not only did somebody believe in you and give you this little nugget of, you know, stick with it and stay consistent, there will be a payoff in the end. But in 1996, you watched the Olympic Games and it, something triggered in you when you saw that. Tell me a little bit more about that moment, what you remember. Yeah, so it was one of the most powerful moments in my life. Um, you know, 10 years old. 1996, a lot of our listeners will remember the uh, Atlanta Olympic Games. It was such a big deal. I mean, the buzz around it and the, the patriotism that came with the Olympics here in the United States. And I had never watched an Olympics before. I didn't fully understand what it was or what it really meant. And I remember my mom and dad saying, hey, you should watch this. This is really exciting. This is really cool. It's the Olympics. I was like, okay. So the moment that really kind of changed everything for me was actually not watching the men's gymnastics team. It was watching the women's gymnastics team. And the, uh, you know, the, the really exciting moment was at the very end of the competition. And for the, those people that don't remember, there was this young girl named Carrie Strug and Carrie Strug, she was 17 years old and she was on the very last event, which was the vault. All she needed to do was run down an 82 foot vault runway, hit a springboard, fly over the vault, do two flips, one and a half twists, land on her feet, and win a gold medal for Team USA. 
not that hard, right? <laughs> I always say <laughs> it's that, so but simple. <laughs> it's extremely difficult to do under immense pressure. And if she lands her vault, they win. If not, I don't even think they would get a medal. And so I remember being glued to the TV screen, watching this moment, thinking, what's going to happen? Like they either win or lose. Like she either lands it or she doesn't. Anyways, she does her first vault and they, they actually had two opportunities to do their vault and they would take the highest score. And her first one, she lands wrong and breaks her ankle. And she's the only person left to compete. And myself and the 40,000 people in the arena and the billions of people around the world, and you're, you know, you know, I know you're probably shaking your head going, I remember this moment too. Remember it well. Not re- you can't not remember this moment. Um, but she hobbles down the vault runway and everybody's thinking, so she's visibly hurt. And you can hear the commentators going, oh no, Carrie Strug is injured. And I just remember thinking like, can she do this? Like if she does this, she's going to be a hero. If she doesn't, like this is a big deal. Well, she ends up running down the runway on a broken ankle, hits the springboard, flies over the vault, two flips, one and a half twist, lands on one foot. Like just crazy stuff. And she falls to the ground after she lands, completes the vaults, but she, she secured the gold medal and her coach scoops her up off the ground, carries her to the medal podium, and her team joins her. They get their medals placed around their necks. The flags go up in the air. The national anthem starts playing. And I remember, like yesterday, staring at the TV, just silent, thinking to myself, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Olympics, and I'm going to do what I just witnessed. And I know now, I didn't know then, but this is what we call our why. And I didn't know why I was doing gymnastics at the time, but then when I saw that, that was my why. I was like, okay, I want to lead Team USA to that exact moment. I want a medal placed around my neck. I want to watch the flag go up. I want to hear the national anthem for me and my team. And it changed everything for me. It was such a special moment that took me from a gymnast to a gymnast with a goal and a mission and a passion that I could not get out of my brain. It was etched in my mind what I had seen. And it was something I I couldn't forget every single day as I walked into the gym thinking, okay, I'm not the best guy, but I'm going to give this thing everything I have until I am one of the best. And so that was that like special moment that I, I pray everybody has in their life at some point, they see something that they go, I I need that. I want that moment. I'm going to do everything that I have to do to get there. That's incredible. I absolutely anybody who was watching the Olympics in those years and, and since because that picture of, of uh, Bella picking her up and carrying her up. I mean, that's just an iconic memory for Americans, yeah. right? And just I have chills even as you're talking about it, remembering it. Um, have you ever met her? Have you had a chance to tell her what that moment meant to you? Yeah. So Carrie and I, we've actually spoken on stage together at, at a, a couple conferences. And I don't know if I've actually told her that story. I think it was more like, I don't get starstruck by people, but when you meet one of your heroes, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, you changed the course of my life. <laughs> um, and it's I, it's almost like it'd be weird to tell her that. Maybe I should one day. I don't know. You should. Yeah, I, I think you should. Because I think it's important for people to recognize that, you know, we impact people all the time. We don't always know how. We don't always yeah. get a chance to hear what our life meant to somebody else, what our yeah. moment meant to somebody else. 
So I, I, I encourage you to do that. I think it would be pretty extraordinary for her to be able to hear that too. But it did really create a deeper purpose for you and, and that sense of why. And you talk a lot about that in the book and about how that passion continued to drive you despite the ups and downs of your competitions and the sports. Let's talk a little bit about some of those competitions because, you know, things don't always go. You set a dream, but you don't always reach it on the first try. You don't always succeed every time you get out there. So I want to share some of the, the ups and downs of your journey. And one of the stories that you share in the book is about the 2009 World Championships and what that moment was for you. And, and, how, and you actually start the chapter off saying it was one of the best moments of your life. But at that time, maybe not so much. Share a little bit in your own words, just kind of retell some of that story of the 2009 World Championships. Yes. So um, my career was, I, I always tell people that I'm the most successful failure in the history of the sport. <laughs> um, but in 2009, I had just come off of a phenomenal two years. I had just went to the Olympic Games, won a couple medals, um, finished the Olympics, went on this huge post-Olympic tour where we went around the United States and we did all these shows and I felt like a rock star at the moment. Then I went to the U.S. Nationals the next year and became the U.S. National Champion. And so there was a lot of expectation on me. Everybody was, you know, really poured their, you know, hopes and dreams into Jonathan Horton. And so I made the world team and went to London and when I got there, I felt amazing. I, my gymnastics was, you know, as good as it had ever been and training was good. And then the day of competition, I walked out onto the floor and for whatever reason, I just felt like garbage. I just felt absolutely terrible. And I walked up to the floor. I raised my hand to do my routine. I ran down the floor for my very first tumbling uh, skill and I landed right on my butt. And I got back up and I was like, okay, that's not good. I'm supposed to be one of the guys that could potentially win the all-around here at the World Championships. But I know I'm not feeling good, and I just fell on my very first element. But I'm going to get back up. I'm going to finish the routine. It's going to be okay. So I finished the routine. I go to the next event, which is Pommel Horse, my nemesis, and I fall twice. At this point, after falling three times at the World Championships, you're pretty much out of it. There's no way to get a medal. The other guys are just going to be too good. And I was actually sitting in last place. And I looked over at my coach and I was like, coach, I am just like, I got the shakes. I feel horrible. I don't know if I didn't eat right or if I'm getting sick. I have no idea what's going on. And usually, you know, a coach is a coach. He's supposed to be there to be like, come on, get your act together. But he looked at me. He's like, man, you don't, you just don't look like yourself. And he goes, man, what do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to keep going. This, this sucks, obviously, but I'm going to keep pushing through. So I go to rings, I do a ring routine. It's like, eh, it's okay. Then I go to vaults, same thing. It's not my best vault. But then I go to parallel bars and I'm still sitting in last place. And I'm like, why am I even here? And I know the other competitors are looking at me like, man, there's something wrong with Jonathan Horton. And my coach is like, okay, seriously, do you want to continue the competition? I looked at him, I'm like, well, look, I'm in last place. At this point, I'm here for some experience. Um, you know, I know I'm an experienced athlete already, but I might as well just push through, see what happens. I'm not a quitter. 
I'm not going to quit this thing. And I want to finish what I started. I may finish in last place, but whatever. So I raise my hand to the judges to signal I'm ready. I do my P-bar routine. And I don't even know how I did it. I felt horrible. I felt weak. But I did the best parallel bar routine in my entire life. <laughs> I nail my dismount. And I put up the highest score of the entire competition. Like the guys that won the meets that placed in the all-around and stuff, I, I think I beat them by like half a point, which is a big deal. And I was like, where did that come from? How did I do that? So then I walk over to high bar. I do the exact same thing. I nail a high bar routine. The crowd goes crazy. And I still, I think I finished in like 15th place or something. Maybe it was worse. Maybe it was like 20th place, which is just awful. I was supposed to be top two, top three. And, uh, you know, I walked away from the competition with my head down. Again, I put up the highest score in my last two events. Nobody was even close. But it wasn't until later on that a coach came up to me from another country, one of the British coaches. And then I had a couple of the other coaches come up and they were like, hey, man, really great to see you stick it out. Really awesome to see that, you know, you're one of the best guys here and you never quit. Like it, was, it would have been so easy for you to say, I'm hurt or I'm sick and just walk out of the arena. You know, and we've seen so many other athletes do that in our sport. Their first couple routines are bad. They'll say, oh, my wrist is hurt, or I feel like I'm going to throw up. I'm going to walk away. And they were like, it's, so, it's just awesome to see that you, you had no quit in you. And it didn't hit me till later that that was a really important thing to do, to show other people some tenacity, to show other people, you know, beyond just wanting to be the best that I actually love what I do. And I'm not going to just walk away from it because I'm having a bad day. And I think it was a really important lesson for me because I took that lesson to other events, like smaller events that I could have, you know, a local competition here in Houston, Texas, that I could have just given up on that. I didn't want to compete at, ah, this meet means nothing. I'm going to walk away. Nothing to learn here. There's a, there's something to learn from every moment. Even the big ones, like just at the world championships, the biggest age possible where I've just bombed. There's something special about just never giving up, never quitting, always fighting, finding something to take away from those moments. Just, it's just as good as, you know, taking something special away like a medal. Might as well take something special away from the moments where you just failed and you're not sure why, but you figure it out later. You know, um, one of the things we were talking about before we got on the call here was the fact that the book that you've written is really personal development for athletes and, and that there aren't books out there, especially in the gymnastics world, about these life lessons, just simple life lessons. And, and the one that you just shared there is something that isn't just for people who are out there competing in sport, you know, lessons for everyone in life. I'm actually going to share from your book what you wrote about this lesson. You wrote, let's just get this out of the way. You're going to lose. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will make mistakes. You may fall at a competition, be the player who blows it for the rest of the team, or make a mental mistake that makes everyone question whether you can ever recover. Making mistakes is a big part of life. The question is how you handle the, the defeat in the moment and how you handle defeat after it's over. Do you leave the moment overwhelmed and hold back when you know problems are snowballing or do you choose to fight to the bitter end? Always fight. If there is one thing I can guarantee to every athlete, it's that you'll recover faster after a hard fought battle, even if it ends in a loss. The worst thing that you can do is to give up when you face certain defeat. 
and you didn't quit and you kept fighting. And like you said, you did your best on the last two events that you were competing in, but you also then the next year came back even stronger. What happened in 2010? Yeah. So 2010, you know, one of the reasons that I mentioned recovering after battling through, you know, some people may say, what is it? What does that exactly mean? Um, it's, it's all a mental state. It's all being able to create an, an attitude of, of never, never quit, always fight, always have an attitude of winning. And the very next year I went to the world championships again and had one of the competitions of best competitions of my entire life. And I became the fourth American gymnast to ever all around uh, win a medal in the all around of the world championships. I got a bronze medal. I was super close to winning the, the silver medal. The guy that won. Um, who we now know is the greatest gymnast that's ever lived. His name is Kohei Uchimura from Japan. Was just like impossible to beat. But, um, you know, just to be able to stand on the medal podium with those guys after knowing what I'd gone through the year before, knowing that, you know, the hard-fought battle in 2009 just drove me to doing something even better the next year. Sometimes we have to fail to realize how bad we want what we want. And, you know, that, that hurt, that pain – makes us either go, okay, like, ah, I just screwed up really bad. I don't care what I'm doing. That's when you maybe need to readjust, you know, what your, what your goals are. But if you fail at something and it stings, it hurts really bad. It just drives us to, to, to better. Like that 2009, 2010, one of the hardest years I ever trained. I didn't want to go and do that again. I didn't want to go to the world championships. And regardless of whether I felt bad or not, I wanted to know I could, I could nail my gymnastics and just be on top of my game. Even if I was sick, even if I just was having an off day, it didn't matter anymore. And so that moment just made me a better gymnast. And that's the reason that I want to medal the next year. Yeah. Such a great lesson, such a great lesson for everyone. You know, I think um, there's a tendency when, when it doesn't go the way we want it to retreat, to give up, to, to back away from it. But when you realize that it's actually just, the opportunity to dig deeper and to, to come back. I mean, you're the perfect example of that. The other thing that you said that I think is really important too is when your coach was questioning you and saying, what do you want to do? And your response was, it isn't just about winning. I love what I do. I'm up here to do what I love to do. And that, that true passion and love of your sport, love of your career was the, the driving force, no matter what the results on the board said. Do you think everybody has that in their life? Do you think everybody has something that they love so much? Do you think that it would carry them through even when things aren't going quite the way they expected? You know, we've, it's funny you ask. We've actually had this conversation you know, before about people and their passions. And it's something that's really stuck with me about, you know, does everybody have that? pure love for their their sports or their their careers or their business and you know I don't totally know the answer other than I think that our life our lives um, we owe it to ourselves to at least search for that love and I think a lot of times people become complacent with that search and we get stuck in in, um, in, a, in a rut or what we're doing And we maybe give up a little bit on finding that passion. And I think it's really important that we're always searching for that moment because 
that love and joy, that, that passion that I have for gymnastics is something that I hope everybody can one day find in something in their lives because it, it's so powerful and it drove me for so many years. It still drives me. I still love the sport and there's so many other you know aspects of the sport that I can now be a part of and it's created a, a new platform for me in so many different ways. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if everybody has found it, but I hope people continue to search for it. Yeah, I think it, uh, you write beautifully about that in the book, in the, in the final thoughts of the book, you, you kind of address that idea. And so I encourage the listeners to, to follow through on that because I think he's got some good words of wisdom as you're out there searching for whatever it is that you're passionate about or whatever it is that you love so much that you're willing to keep going, even when it doesn't go quite the way that you had anticipated. There was, however, a moment that did go very well for you. It wasn't exactly as you anticipated it, but it also speaks to how you handle things under pressure. And that was the 2008 Olympics and what happened when you did your high bar routine. Mm -hmm. Share some of that story because it's pretty extraordinary what you, did, what you decided to do and how it turned out. So it's probably one of my favorite stories to tell because it was it, it was unexpected for not just the you know the gymnastics world but for me personally I didn't expect to do what I did, um, but basically I always you know I keep harping on the fact that I wasn't a super talented gymnast um, and I always tell people about how my nemesis was was the pommel horse and I was never any good at that event but what a lot of people don't know is I was also horrendous on the high bar. And for our listeners that don't know what the high bar is, it's a steel bar that stands 10 feet off the floor and we flip and twist and we fly off of it. It's a crazy radical event. I like to say it should be in the X Games. But um, when I was a little kid, I was so bad. I couldn't figure out how to maneuver my body properly on the thing. I was a little bit, you know, I don't want to say scared in the beginning, but I got over that, that kind of initial shock of the fact that I'm 10 feet off the ground. I'm supposed to be circling around this steel bar. And I eventually was like, okay, like I, at around the age of 12, 13 years old, I, I was so far behind on the high bar and these kids around me were learning all these cool tricks that I just, they were super intricate little twisting and turning skills that I just couldn't do. And I was like, okay, at this point I'm over the fear of high bar. Like I'm not scared of this thing at all anymore, but I still am so bad at it. How, like, what, what am I going to do to figure this thing out? And one day I was sitting at home and I was, again, like I always did, I was watching gymnastics on TV and I was watching one of the, the, I think he was a gymnast from Russia. He was swinging around the bar super fast. He let go of the bar. He did a double backflip and then he caught the bar. And I was like, whoa, what the heck was that? And, um, I, I like couldn't get the, the idea out of my head of what I'd just seen. And I went back into the gym the very next day and I told my coach, I was like, Hey, I was watching gymnastics on TV yesterday. This guy swung around the bar let go, did a double backflip, and he caught the bar. What is that? My coach goes, oh, that's called a Kovacs. It's one of the hardest skills being done in gymnastics today. And I was like, yeah, I want to learn that. And he was like, <laughs> he just kind of looked at me and laughed. He was like, no, you're not going to learn that. He's like, you can't even learn the other stuff you're supposed to be learning. And I was like, yeah, well, I can't do that stuff. It, like my, I can't wrap my mind around any of that. But the idea of swinging super fast around the bar, letting go and flipping and catching, maybe super dangerous, but I think I can do it. And he's like, no, absolutely not. And just to kind of get me off his back, because I kept asking and asking and asking, he was like, okay, look, 
there's this like way of setting up into that skill. You have to learn how to maneuver the bar, pull on the bar a certain way before you do it. I'll let you practice like the setup stuff. It's actually called a tap swing to be technical. Anyways, I was like, okay, like he'll let me do that. So I did that for a couple months. And one day I was in the gym and I looked at my teammates. I was like, guys, coach isn't paying attention. I'm going to go for this skill. And um, they were like, dude, you're going to die. And I was like, no, I got it. So I swung around the bar as fast as I could. I let go of the bar. I did the double backflip. And everybody was like, whoa, I didn't catch the bar. They were like, you actually like did it kind of right. And I kept trying it, kept trying it. Two days later, I caught a Kovacs. I was 13 years old. I was the youngest kid that ever completed the skill. And my coach was like blown away. He was baffled. He was like, I can't believe you just did that. And at that point, I was like, well, wow, I found something I'm really good at. Well, I'm just going to run with this. And so I learned a bunch of different variations of the Kovacs. And at around the age of like 15, 16, I was doing this wild routine that no one else in the world had ever seen. It was super extreme. And, you know, no other gymnasts were performing even close to a routine like this. And uh, I had a lot of backlash, though. I had a lot of people come up to me and say, stop doing that. It's not traditional gymnastics. That's way too extreme. You're too much of a the gymnastics term, you're a huck and chuck kind of guy. Stop doing that. You're going to hurt yourself. That'll never be possible under pressure. Yada, yada. I heard it all. Anyways, you know, as I continued doing the routine, I got to where I could complete it under pressure. I was one of the best guys in the country, maybe the world at doing this high bar routine. And in 2008, as I was preparing for the Olympics, something crazy happened. For whatever reason, I'd been doing that routine for like 10 years. I started missing the bar. I started falling every single time I performed. And my coach and I had to make a decision. We were like, I don't I have no idea what's going on. Everything else that I'm doing is so good right now. We can't let one routine ruin my Olympic performance. So we made the tough decision to kind of water the routine down. And, you know, it was a shot at my pride. I had to take a bunch of these hard, crazy skills out. And um, I was just like, man. I know I could be one of the best in the world at the Olympics on high bar, but I got to do what I got to do to nail a routine under pressure and do what's right for, for the team as a whole, not just for me. Anyway, so I go to the preliminary round and I perform my high bar routine. It's the easy one and I nail it. I do a great job with it and I'm not expecting to be one of the top guys after the preliminary round, but I look over at the scoreboard after the full day of competition and I'm sitting in seventh. And in order to compete in the medal round of competition, you have to be top eight. And I was like, whoa, I did not expect that easy routine to get into the top eight at the Olympics. And suddenly I got this wild idea. I was like, I know what I'm going to do. And I went over to my coaches. I went over to my teammates. I was like, guys, I'm going to throw all my old skills back in the routine. Plus, I'm going to add a few other ones that I've never performed before that no one else in the world is doing right now. What do you guys think? And he looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, dude, you know you cannot nail your routine right now. You're in a rut. Plus, you want to do that routine and add more to it? I was like, yeah, I want to go for the gold. If I do this easier watered-down routine, the best I can expect is maybe seventh or eighth. And I want to know that I have a shot at a medal, if not win. And my coaches, were they were like, no you don't want to fall at the Olympics. No one changes the routine at the Olympics. This is unprecedented. You're just not going to do it. And again, like when I was younger, my coach, just to get me to like be quiet, I, cause I begged him to try this routine in the training sessions. He was like, okay, fine. I'll let you try it a few times, but you're not doing it, doing it in competition. 
I was like, okay, cool. So I go and I try it in the practice uh, facilities because we had about five, maybe six days between prelims and the medal round. And I did it maybe 10 times and I fell on it over and over and over again. And everybody was looking at me like, you're insane. What are you doing? And uh, I, in the book, I wrote my, one of my favorite quotes. And one of the things that I couldn't get out of my head was um, a, a movie quote from the, from the movie Miracle about the 1980 U.S. hockey team where the coach, Herb Brooks, he says, guys, we may play them 10 times and they beat us nine, but not this one. And I just kept thinking to myself, I may do this high bar routine 100 times and fall 99 times, but in the moment, I know I can nail it. I only have to nail it one time. And so the day of competition, I'm, I'm in the arena, a lot like when I was a kid watching the Olympics on TV. It was about 40,000 people. The place was electric. The judges were all lined up. I had cameras in my face. And I'm standing there underneath the high bar. I'm the only competitor on the competition floor. I remember thinking to myself, like, this is it. This is the one. It's going to happen. And my coach looked at me, and he was like, please do the easier routine. <laughs> and I was like, no, coach, I'm going for it. He lifted me up to the bar, and I started doing my routine. I was swinging around the bar, let go for my first element, which I hadn't competed before. And my hands, they wrapped around the bar just perfectly. And um, I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, I just got through the hardest skill in the routine. I can't believe I'm still on the bar. I wound up for my next one. I let go again, grab the bar again. Same thing on the next one, grab the bar again. I caught the bar four times on four major release elements. And typically I'd be exhausted at this point, but the adrenaline and the crowd and the people were going crazy. And I just, I felt so fresh, so good. I wasn't tired at all. And I wound up for a dismount. It was the hardest dismount anybody was doing in the world. Triple twisting, double backflip. And I landed on my feet. And at that moment, I became the second best gymnast in the entire planet on high bar. And everybody was like, I remember my teammates looked at me later and they were like, you're crazy. We don't know how you just did that, but that's awesome. And so it was, um, you know, it was maybe a little bit of luck. There's a whole lot of self-belief. There's a lot of, um, you know, just thinking about the, the moment and thinking, what do I have to lose? Everybody's trying to tell me to play it safe. It would be, you'll look like a fool if you fall at the Olympics but I just didn't care. I'd rather fall and know I had a shot at winning than to do something easier and know that I never had a shot at all. And, you know, it was just totally worth it to me and to have that medal placed around my neck and know what I went through to the way I started my, my career, not ever being, you know, any good at high bar the way I ended my career as one of the best in the world. You know, I just, it's like a storybook finish to me. It is, but you know, I replayed that so many times. I remember watching you in the 2008 Olympics. I remember you getting the the silver. Uh, Li Jiaoping got the gold that year. Those who remember watching it, and but I didn't know that story until I read the book. Until you wrote yeah. it, and and so I've I've thought about it a lot of times since reading it and and working with you. And I keep thinking, you know, how many times that somebody stands up at the moment that they have to perform and that may not necessarily be an athletic event. It might just be that they have to give their presentation or they have to sell their product or whatever it is they have to perform and they go with the easy. They, they take the easy way out and, 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 and now multiply that because it's the Olympics and it's the world is watching literally millions and millions of people around the world watching and you make this change and it, it was due to your mindset. I've tried to put myself in your position in that moment since I've read the story and talked with you. And I think that mindset 
where you just said, I'd rather go out fighting. I'd rather go down swinging than have never taken the shot that I knew I could have taken. Where does somebody develop that mindset? Where did you develop that mindset? How, how does somebody get that idea so that when they have this opportunity to step up, they can cultivate that same type of idea where you, you go down swinging? Yeah, it's, you know, it's tough. I get that question a lot. And uh, I do think it can be developed. I think it takes a lot, a, a long time. And I think that if you never allow yourself to fail doing the little things, you'll never allow yourself to fail during the, the big things. Um, I let myself fall so many times leading up to that moment that I knew what it felt like. And I was okay with it. Um, you know, that routine that I was doing when I started, I started doing it when I was 13. I didn't start, I didn't, wasn't able to actually complete it successfully until I, I think I was 16 or 17 years old. And so it was ingrained in me that, okay, there's a risk here, but I'm used to it because I've, I've established that idea already that I'm doing something risky for a high reward. It's not like, so if, uh, you know, to try to use your analogy, if somebody had a big presentation or a big sales pitch, if they hadn't trained themselves in smaller sales pitches throughout the years to go all out and take, go for the risk and be used to sometimes it not going well, they're not going to be in that mindset to do it in the really big moment. I don't even know if you will get to that really big moment if you're not okay with failing. So I think it just takes time. It's baby steps. You have to crawl before you walk and you have to be okay with day one, whatever it is that you're doing with, you know, it's like a lot of gymnasts say, I guess a lot of athletes say go big or go home from the get go. Um, you just can't be tentative. You can't hold back. Um, and it's a little bit like Ninja Warrior in the sense I've gotten involved in American Ninja Warrior. And it's a little bit strange for me right now, because what a lot of people don't know when you step up to the starting line at Ninja Warrior they don't let us practice any of the obstacles. What you see on TV is our very first time stepping up. And so you don't know what the surface of the obstacles are going to feel like. You don't know how they're going to swing through the air. You have to step up there and attack from the moment you step on the course. If you don't attack from the very first moment, I've seen people jump on the very first obstacle and fall in the water because they are holding back. They don't go all out. They, they're, they're afraid to go big because they think they're going to make a mistake. But what happens, you don't go big at all and you don't make a mistake anyways. It's almost like um, playing the game not to lose instead of playing to win. Mm. Um, not trying. Yeah. So it's like uh, you have to train yourself from the very beginning to, to just be in that mindset of, okay, I'll do whatever it takes. If I fail, I fail. It doesn't matter. I'll just get back up and try again. Hmm. I love that. It's, it's almost as if you're developing a muscle, you know, you, yeah. you, you let yourself Perfect. fail, you let yourself break down just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And pretty soon it, you're more resilient. You're stronger. Yeah. You, you can handle more. You can hold more. You can take the bigger risk. Um, yeah. yeah. Great, great piece of advice. Something for people to think about as they're listening to that. The other thing that I was noticing as you've been sharing some of these stories is how many times you were told no, you were told that you couldn't do it many, many, many times in your life. Did you ever get to a point where you believed that? Um, there were definitely down 
down times in my career where I wanted to believe it or maybe didn't want to believe it, but almost let it get into me. But I think my why was bigger than people's excuses for me. People, you know, I wasn't a traditional gymnast. Gymnastics is, it's, there's a reason the formal name is artistic gymnastics. It's based on artistry and beautiful lines and a nice toe point. And what you see on TV out of the best gymnasts is a flow and a, um, you know, the, the best gymnast in the world. I mentioned, mentioned him already, Kohei Uchimura. When people, when they translate him in interviews, he always says he loves his art. He loves to paint his, his art and his masterpiece and do what he does. And his goal is to create art with his body. I wasn't traditionally able to do that. I didn't have a beautiful line and a nice toe point and the ability to do these like free flowing, intricate skills. And so many people told me you're, you, uh, you don't have, you don't have the look of an Olympic gymnast. You, um, there, I I think I wrote this in the book, but there was even a, a member of our U S selection committee. One of the members that was putting the Olympic team together that said, Jonathan Horton doesn't properly represent the United States as a gymnast. He doesn't look right as a gymnast. And, you know, that definitely got in my head. And I always tried to adjust and make my body look differently and have the longer, leaner lines. I just wasn't able to do it. And so for me, I had to find another way to be successful. I had to find a new form that worked for me. I had to find a way to be exciting for people so that the judges were excited to see me and overlooked where I wasn't like everybody else. Um, and so all of the naysayers and people told me that I wasn't going to succeed. They just didn't understand that I was willing to do whatever it took in the sense that, um, there's no, what is it? Somebody said to me one day, uh, you know, there's no wrong way to succeed if you can find another route or uh, another way around it. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but I just found another path. I wasn't okay with somebody telling me, because you're not like this, you can't do it. I was like, no, because I'm not like that. I need to do it another way. Um, and I don't know if I was born with that or if I was just so hard-headed um, that I wasn't willing to accept what people told me. But I just – I knew that there had to be another path. There's always another path. And maybe that's what Mr. Jim saw in you way back when, right? <laughs> you know, that yeah, it's that like the, willingness to find the way no matter what. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, the ADD kicks in, and it's like, don't tell me I can't do it. I'm going to do it whether you say it or not. Um, and maybe that is what he saw. <laughs> well, in your book, you actually write a whole chapter on it. You call it Let the Haters Win. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I – you know, and that chapter is based on just, you know, let people talk and say what they want, let them feel like they, they are right and just move on and just keep going. Um, and it's something that I had to do every single day in my career, not just because, um, people on the outside of the sport telling me I wasn't good enough, but people within the sport. Luckily I, I was blessed with personal coaches that saw something in me that believed in me, but I had other coaches outside of my actual gym that I heard through the grapevine that were like, Hey, Jonathan Horton, like, okay, he's, he's not the kid we want. Um, he's and, and the amount of times that I fell and let the team down 
there's so many people that just always it's in my ear like hey you need to do this different you need to do this different that's not going to work nope you can't do that nope that'll never work at the olympics nope stop that altogether and so i used to try to defend myself and say no i can do this like just leave no trust me no believe in me please and i got to the point where i was like you know what you're right and i just smile at them and say okay yeah okay yep you know what you are so correct thank you. And I would just like walk away from them and just be like, okay, I hope he feels really good about himself right now, but I'm going to go and I'm going to prove him wrong. And just by letting them have that sense of satisfaction that they just, they just schooled me and just told me what they know. I, I never went up to anybody later in my career and said, I told you so, but I would love to know the reaction of all those people. When I had two medals placed around my neck at the Olympic games later, I want to know if they were just like, holy cow, like, how did he do that? Or, you know, maybe some of them were like, well, okay, that, I commend you. I, who knows? I don't care. I let them win at that point and stop trying to defend myself. I just went and proved it with my actions. Yeah. And I, and I love that part of the book because when I'm coaching people myself, you know, one of the things that is, is very difficult for people to get over is that fear of, being judged, being critiqued, being seen as less than or unable or ill-equipped or uneducated or whatever, you know, the fear is, but it's all that fear that of that judgment. And what you are saying is find your niche, find yeah. your thing and run your race and let them have their way. Because yep. at the end of the day, all you can do is be your best you. Yeah. You have to put the blinders on and just have tunnel vision and move forward. If you really believe in what you're doing and you have this, what I like to call unshakable faith in you, in yourself and your ability, the, there's going to be so many people that try to doubt you until you can't do something. And I call them haters and it's what they are. They're going to hate on you until you can't, but they don't understand your passion, your why, how bad you want it. And you just have to keep moving forward without them. One of the passions and one of the, the things that you're doing now that you've ended your gymnastics career and are, are starting some other things is to write this book. And I want to talk a little bit more about this book because I, I think it is something unique. It is a niche. Um, it's, it's got some great life lessons, not just for athletes, although athletes will get a lot from it. Talk a little bit about this process of becoming a published author, what this has been like for you, what your intention is with the book, and, and what you hope people will get from it. Yeah, so about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, I was doing an interview, and I got a question that I had never gotten before. A guy looked at me and goes, so what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were younger, maybe 11, 12, 13 years old? And I was like, huh, never thought of that before. And the light bulb kind of went off. And I started thinking about all of the things that maybe I didn't know or did know that I didn't take serious. And that's where the, the idea for the book came to life and why I've titled it, If I Had Known. Um, because, you know, I think that there's a lot of stuff that I've developed over the years that I think it would have been really nice if I had um, a mentor or somebody that had told me these things ahead of time and really drilled it into my brain to take this stuff really serious and here's how to be successful and it maybe could have helped me um you know get through some of the struggles in my career a little bit easier and so you know i've written the book and it's really uh 
it's geared towards a younger base of really just ambitious people. If you are an athlete and you want to be a professional athlete or an Olympian, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, there's a ton, you know, the entire book is based on my career, which is gymnastics. But I think uh, if you're a young person who has big ambitions in the business world, there's so many good nuggets in there for you as well. Um, if you look beyond all of the sports stuff and, um, you know, there's, I, I was trying to search for a personal development book like mine and I couldn't really find it. And I, I think that was one of the passions that I had why I was writing the book and I am very passionate about it. Um, but it didn't take me that long to write it. I, I just sat down and I started thinking about all these different moments in my life and what I pulled from them and I just stuck it all together and I had a lot of fun doing it. To tell you the truth, the whole process was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. Um, having it published and you know being able to just work with great people like yourself to just get it done and get it knocked out. And um, I, I really don't think that there's another book like mine, especially in, in my own personal world, the gymnastics world, it doesn't exist. You know, there's a lot of autobiographies about Olympians out there that they go and they win their Olympic medals and they write their autobiography about how they got to the Olympics and every experience and super inspirational, but there's not really any book that takes a career and says, well, here's like the really kind of the, uh, the grassroots of how I got there, what I learned from it here's what I can give back to the next generation. And that's really kind of what I put into the book. I, I want the next generation of athletes, entrepreneurs, business people, everybody to, to just be able to look at mine and learn from my mistakes and be able to um, just, if you could take one little nugget from it and say that helped me, that that's, that's what matters to me. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what, the book reads like for anyone who's listening and, and wants to pick it up. It is full of great nuggets. If you get one of them, I think it will help improve whatever you're doing in your life, whether it's competing or, or just working to succeed in whatever you're doing. And, and it's only one of, of a couple books you have coming out because you have another one coming very soon as well. And an autobiography as well. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, so and then, just share a little bit about that and share a little bit about what you're doing now that gymnastics has done. Yeah. So I've got an autobiography that's going to release nine months to a year from now. Um, working hard on that. It's, it's, I actually found it more easier to break my life stories into different pieces and kind of share, you know, the, the personal lesson from it than it is to just write out my entire story. It's been more challenging. Um, so I've got that. And then actually I've actually I've somewhat inspired myself by my first book and I'm already starting to work on chapters for, you know, you know, my second edition of the first book. Uh, I've already got like 10 different chapters that I want to work on and start writing. And so I'm excited about that. But, um, other than that, yeah, I'm doing a lot of motivational speaking. I go around the country. I do a lot of corporate events, do a, a work with a lot with schools, um, speak at churches, going to be doing some stuff with the military in 2019. And then also I am, uh, I've partnered in a company called Ninja Coalition and super stoked about this because I've got, you know, I'm able to take my passions right now of gymnastics, ninja, and sharing my story and combine it all together into one. And so what we do with the Ninja Coalition is we own a 50 foot by 20 foot mobile obstacle course. And 
that idea was kind of sparked by the fact that everywhere I was going, people were asking about Ninja Warrior. Hey, how do we try these obstacles? We really want to, you know, what's it like to do the salmon ladder? How hard is the 14 foot warp wall? And so we were like, we just need to bring this to people, you know? And so we've done a bunch of corporate events. We've gone to schools, we've done two church events and we set up our course and we do a Ninja Warrior experience. I deliver a keynote and we're also partnered with a bunch of the other ninjas from the show, like Daniel Gill and Joe Morofsky, Jesse Labreck, Alyssa Beard. And it's super fun to see any, you know, kids from seven years old all the way to adults who 65, 70 come and try full scale obstacles from the TV show that, you know, you watch the show and you, you would just wonder, I wonder if I can do that. <laughs> and it sits over a giant like stunt airbag. So it's super safe and we spot you and help you out. And it's just a blast. And we've got, I think, nine or 10 events potentially lined up for the next year. And uh, I'm just, I'm super pumped about what all is coming together with the Ninja Coalition. I really love that. And, you know, our mutual friend, Daniel Gill, I had him on the show a, a while ago. And one of the things he was talking about and that has struck me as I've gotten to know you guys is the the camaraderie, the the real family feeling that you ninja warriors have created, you know, you, you didn't necessarily know each other before you began competing, but even from the audience, you can tell that there's a great bond, a really strong bond between you. How do you describe that? Is that something that you're experiencing and how do you describe that? Yeah, there's nothing fake about it. And the, the community of ninja warrior competitors is so strong and so tight knit. And I, I want to say it's a lot like the gymnastic community in the sense that all of us have picked this sport that is so hard and so difficult to be successful at that all of us are just kind of rooting for each other to see how far we can get. And in 10 seasons, only one person's won the grand prize. And all of us are chomping at the bit to do it ourselves, but we just respect anyone that can even get close at this point. And it's the same thing in, in gymnastics. It's like our sport takes so many years to perfect and become a master of, but it's impossible to become perfect. And we just have so much respect for each other and what we're able to do. And the, the ninja community is no different. We spend time out, you know, outside of the show. We train together. We hang out together. We challenge each other to you know, Hey, you know, we throw out Instagram videos and stuff like that and say, Hey, you guys try this and then post your video. Let me know how it goes. And it's just a super cool community. And beyond the show, there's another community of people that we also hang out with that we're trying to get on the show. And so it's just a really fun world that has become competitive outside of NBC's American Ninja Warrior. There's competitions every single weekend, somewhere in the country. And the sport is just growing rapidly. I think a few years ago, I heard that lacrosse was the fastest growing sport in the United States. I'm pretty sure Ninja Warrior has surpassed that times 100, and it's just exploding everywhere. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me either. I think it is too. There's something about the challenge of it. You know, people do like to get themselves outside their comfort zone and reach for the next, literally <laughs> reach for the next obstacle, whatever that might be. I also think there's something you mentioned earlier to the, uh, to the fact that you have to step up and give it all from the get-go, that there is no try. It is all in 
and, and you go for it. And I think there is something in the human spirit that is driven by that desire and that excitement of going all in. And uh, you, you certainly have to do that. But in addition to it being a competition, it's really a collaboration. And it's really this mutual respect and, and you're, you're standing on the sidelines cheering just as loudly for the person that's competing against you. Because if they do it, you will be awestruck, even if it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, the greatest example just from Ninja Warrior alone is if you watch this past season, the last two guys standing were Drew Dreschel and Sean Bryan. And on stage three, $100,000 on the line, the guy who gets the furthest, the fastest, Sean Bryan goes, does a great job, doesn't get through it, but he falls. With stage three, he's like nearly impossible to get through. And then Drew Dreschel comes up next. And you know who's on the sideline cheering him on? Sean Bryan. <laughs> it's like, well, come on, buddy. Let's go, man. I know if you beat me, you take the $100,000. But I want to see how far you can get, man. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's go all out from the beginning. But uh, if there's one thing that I know, it's you know what Zig Ziglar said. If you help enough other people get what they want, you'll in return get what you want. And so that's why it's so important to cheer people on, be a team, really – uh, be there to support others, even if you know it's going to go against maybe what you'll get in the end. It always comes back around. Yeah, and in fact, that's almost exactly how you end the book. Let me read to you the the final couple sentences of your book. You said, if you have a dream, go all out. Make the decision early on that no matter what, you won't quit. Exhaust every resource you can to make that dream a reality. Fight until the bitter end and find something valuable to take away from every situation, not just in competition, but every single day as you inch closer and closer to the goal. Forget what people say about you. Forget about the obstacles that may lie ahead and focus on your dreams. Good luck. I believe in you. Yeah. Um, you know, every single thing that I wrote there is, uh, is 100% from the heart. I do believe in people. I believe that people can... Um, you know, accomplish so much if they just put time and effort and blood, sweat, and tears into every single thing that they're doing. Life is an emotional roller coaster. It will emotionally, financially, spiritually. So, um, I don't know if I did, I just lose you there. Nope. You're good. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, you know, life is, uh, you know, it's, it's a big roller coaster of emotions and you just have to you got to ride the roller coaster, hang on tight. And um, I, I believe in, in so much that people can do. Excellent. I always like to end the podcast with a comment about the title of the podcast. And I think this is a perfect way to end this conversation. The title of the podcast is It Just Takes One. And I like that because I think it means something different to everybody and it resonates in a different way with everybody. When I say it just takes one, what does it mean to you? You know, I think we, I think we kind of talked about it in the beginning. I think it takes one moment of belief, really 100% just belief that we can do something to drive us. And for me, it took one moment of me seeing the Olympics on TV and believing I can do that. It took my coach one moment of belief in me to pour some time into me. It took one moment of experiencing my first victory at 16 years old to think, hey, I can do this again. And so it just takes one moment of, 
of belief to think I can move forward. I have more in me. This is possible. Well, I believe in you and I think this is possible and there is more out there for you. I look forward to seeing where you go and, and what you do with everything that you've learned so far in life and how many more people you can help with the lessons you've learned. If people are interested in finding out more about you or would like to follow you, where can they reach you? Where can they find you? Yeah, so there's a few different places that people can find me. Um, first is my website, jonathanhorton.net, which is a work in progress, working on making it a little bit more user-friendly. But also, I'm all over social media, Instagram. I'm jhorton11. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, uh, which is the same the same thing, jhorton11. And then also, I am always open to giving people my email address. Please contact me at jonathanhorton at att.net. Uh, I love to chat with people and uh, make good connections. Fantastic. Jonathan, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you. I'm so excited about this book being out, being a bestseller, and I wish you all the best as you continue forward in life. Yeah, thanks so much, Kelly. It's been great talking to you. At the end of the interview, Jonathan said, it takes one moment of belief 100% belief that we can do something that can drive us to make all the difference. And throughout the interview, he shared how that premise has worked in his life in so many different ways. From the time his parents watched him scamper up a pole in Target and believed he could do gymnastics, to his coach, who saw something very unique in him, to the belief that he showed in himself at the London World Championships, where he proved that you can keep fighting even when things aren't going well. To the 100% belief he had in himself, which allowed him to change his routine at the last minute and to walk away from the 2008 Olympics with a silver medal. <laughs> that story still astounds me. <laughs> but the point is this. So many times Jonathan proved that when you believe in yourself or in someone else, you can accomplish incredible things. It's a message that I hope you will take with you as you work through your own challenges in life. Maybe something in what Jonathan said or something he has done will inspire you to keep fighting, to believe in yourself, and to accomplish extraordinary things in your own life. I hope you'll check out Jonathan's book, If I Had Known, Life Lessons from an Olympic Pro Athlete, which is now available on Amazon. And be sure to watch for him in the next season of NBC's American Ninja Warrior. But for now, it's time to turn it back to you because it's your turn to go out and be the one. If you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to take a moment and write a review for us on iTunes or wherever you receive your podcast. Those reviews help us grow our audience and get these messages out to more people. And as always, I appreciate any comments that you have. And be sure to check out our next episode of It Just Takes One, where I talk with Pete Holman 
a former U.S. national taekwondo champion, inventor of the TRX Rip Trainer, and more recently, another piece of equipment he invented, the Nautilus Glute Drive. Pete is a physical therapist, a certified strength and conditioning coach, and now a best-selling author of a new book. I can't wait for you to hear that episode, which is coming soon. 